Welcome to Road to Desert Rain, brought to you by Desert Rain Community Radio. Today I sit down with Paul West, and he talks about his uh, time growing up in Texas and Oklahoma, and some of the adventures he went on throughout his life until eventually uh, landing back in El Paso, and uh, eventually even landing here at Desert Rain. But before we get into that, thank you, Diego, at Recording Moving Studios. He does all the editing and sound engineering. Thank you to David and Danny West. Uh, it's the music you hear in the background. If you're interested in learning more about Desert Rain as a community, check out theruin.com. You can also check out drcrpod.com for other episodes. Um, either of Road to Desert Rain or Dispatches from the Verge. Lastly, if you enjoy what you're hearing, please tell a friend. Uh, Word of mouth and social media definitely helps us out. We appreciate you, and let's get into it. Welcome to Road to Desert Rain. I'm here with Paul West. How are you doing today, Paul? Doing all right. Happy... uh, Whatever, September afternoon. (laughs) I don't even know what day it is. (laughs) It's Saturday. Uh, Yeah, we're sitting down today. Um, I know a little bit about your background. Um, I think you grew up in El Paso, right? Yes, sir. You lived here. And so, yeah, um, the question we usually lead off with was sort of the uh, spiritual, religious upbringing that was was your household um, growing up. So what, what did that look like? Um, as early as I can remember, uh, we were going to a, a, a denominational church. It's called Bethany Christian Church. Mm. And um, all I remember about that is the kids were always playing around, and um, we didn't have a whole, whole lot of uh, things to do. Mm. And so, you know, when my mom decided that I'm supposed to sit by her, I'd get all um antsy fidgety and, and whatnot she'd reach over and start pinching me <laughs> to tell me to stop <laughs> so it's like stop being a kid and then, um i don't know what happened but we ended up going to a uh a charismatic church uh that was down the valley i think the lower valley and um it was uh um fred walker uh, I think they called it Jesus Chapel. And the difference was between night and day. I mean, I just remember I'd sit in the sanctuary of the of the Bethany Christian Church, and all I can remember is it was just kind of dark, cold, and musty. And uh, the church we went to in the valley was like, you know, it was like it had more windows or something, mm. and it was just light and, you know, uh, there was all kinds of people. There was um, homeless people, and uh, you name it. I mean, there was just it was a, a wide uh, what's the word um, like representation? Yeah, of, of just a totally different people, and and they were just all in love with Jesus, and um, the music was really good, and uh, I just remember feeling nothing but love. Wow. You know, and, and it, have you always felt that sort of, or at least as a child, I guess, uh, to preface it, 
that connection with with God or a higher power or, or, or Jesus, you know, in this instance? Yeah, yeah. There's always been different times in my life through different situations where I'd have that same feeling and um, that kind of, like I, I, I've said before in other conversations that I don't remember a time where, you know, I was presented with the gospel and pray this prayer and, you know, you're saved. Mm. Um, I During that time for my birthday or Christmas, I got a little record player and I'm go with that. They gave me um, two books um, with a record in it and they were kids' books. And one was on uh, uh, Blind Bartimaeus from uh, the book of Mark, I think. Okay. And I think it's chapter four. And there was Bartimaeus, and he was blind, and you know, and, and he heard Jesus was in town, and so he went. There was this crowd of people there, and they were all like, "Get away, get away," you know. And then Jesus started calling him, and then the the group changed, like, "Hey, he's calling you. Yeah, go, you know, go. go up," you know. And and so he went up, and then you know, you know, eventually got healed. But um, and what was the other? And the other, the other one story? was the the Good Samaritan. Okay. And, like, the first two guys were, like, representative, like, the institutional Mm -hmm. church, you know, Mm -hmm. or whatever. And I always get mad at them, you know, and for not helping the guy on the road. And uh, and it was kind of like the way they did it, it was kind of like everything rhymed. And so it was very, um, the story went really good. And the rhyming helped you memorize, mm. you know, what, what was there. And I used to listen to them all the time. And uh, um, that really uh, stuck with me um, um, throughout, throughout my, my years, you know. And uh, I'm think about those often and crying out to the Lord and, uh, you know, how, how am I treating my neighbor? Yeah, I mean, it, it, those are those, oh, you know, David and I just, just uh, wrapped up a podcast and that was one of the things, well, it's an ongoing theme, but sort of this idea of service, right? Like, how can I be of service to my neighbor, you know, to, yeah. to my friends and my family, to the, to the stranger, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, pivotal, pivotal stuff for, for spiritual growth and it's amazing you got to encounter that yeah you know in a meaningful way to you so you know so uh sort of going from there you know being within this church that you just felt connected to connected to god you know the records and and so how how did how did it evolve through the rest of your childhood i know i know you moved around a few times yeah um well sometime when i was a little kid i can't remember if i five six Somewhere around that time, um, I was starting to get uh, uh, sexually abused by an older person in our neighborhood. And um, and at the school, at the same time, I think it was maybe later, um, they wanted to start a soccer team. And at that point in my life, I was like a fit little kid and... uh, could do a lot of running, and I had asthma, but I had it under control. Okay, and uh, and so I joined the soccer team, and then all of a sudden, 
the principal called us in the office one day, everybody that was playing soccer, and he interviewed each one of us and uh, um, asked if if any kind of touching inappropriately or whatever was going on from this coach. And and sure enough, you know, it, it happened to me and and I just, I didn't want to deal with it, so I didn't say anything. Mm. Um, so I just kept that kind of inside. And uh, uh, so I was kind of living with that uh, fear and I was having trouble in school uh, because of it, and my mom, uh, she didn't know what to do because, you know, I was kind of like, kind of like rebellious in school. This is elementary school, and um, I was diagnosed with dyslexia. They didn't know a whole lot about it at the time, so I was put in special classes, and um, and they were just like, um, I'm a, you know, I'm a trained uh, special education worker and uh, teacher, and Nothing like it was in the in the early seventies. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, and so, you know, I had always had that dark cloud hanging over me. And I, one time, though, um, I was laying in bed, and I had just kind of gotten up, and um, I had this like open vision. You know, of the sky and the clouds, and um, the sun coming through the clouds, kind of in beams. And the clouds kind of opened up, and there was like this great light there, and there was like two praying hands, like you've seen in the uh, on the Christian bookstores or whatever. Yeah. They show the two healing right. he, uh, uh, the hands in prayer. Right. And that was kind of the picture. And I heard a voice, and for the life of me, I can't remember what it was, but there was like in the background. There was like you know some most incredible uh, music uh, that was playing, and um, some other things happened I didn't quite understand, but it it solidified something in me that you know there's someone in charge and um, he knows my pain, and um, I was able to trust that at the time, at the time, and. I just started praying for something to happen where, you know, everything would stop and, you know, and one time my mom got really frustrated with me for acting up at school and there was a detention center for uh, youth in trouble and uh, one time she put me in the car and um, drove up to the place and I was like, what are you doing, Mom? Where are we going? And Well, I'm telling you, this is where you're going to go if you don't start straightening up, mm. you know. And I just add more, you know, fear. and <laughs> More anxiety. And, yeah. Yeah, of course. So I just pushed everything down even more um, and tried really hard. Um, so, uh, yeah, um Yeah, I guess. Um, and eventually, I mean, eventually your prayer was answered. Something yeah, did happen. Yeah, at some point, um, I think I was uh, 11 or 12, and we moved from El Paso uh, to Oklahoma City, or north of Oklahoma City. And that was kind of a culture shock. Um, 
you know, because El Paso had all different kinds of people. And right. There wasn't a whole lot of, you know, racial animosity or or whatever. I mean, there, you know. Tension, racial yeah, tension. Yeah, yeah. But it was real, you know, um, in our neighborhood. I mean, there was, you know, all kinds of people. And, and uh, um, so, yeah, um, in Oklahoma, uh, I got involved in uh, um, Boy Scouts. And we got started going to a Presbyterian church. And in order to join the church, you had to go through these classes and, and uh, my mom really liked it because I guess uh, they had a women's group mm. and they were all kind of like what you would consider charismatic or whatever. And uh, she really liked that. Uh, um, so we were going there exclusively and, and the youth group was like basic youth group, you know, you know, kids getting in trouble and trying to do dumb things and, you know, they take us on retreats and stuff right. and, you know, we were in trouble for listening to the Eagles or, <laughs> you know, or whatever. I mean, whatever it was that, it was that like, particular day. Right, right. And so uh, um, did that. And uh, I was so relieved that the I didn't have that the sexual abuse thing just right at the, my forefront. I was able to focus in on some things. I had a music teacher. I was playing trumpet. And he came to me and said, Paul, I think you'd really do good playing the tuba. Would you be interested in that? And I was like, sure. And uh, started playing it, and sure enough, I, I got onto it real easy. Mm. And uh, um, that was good. We we played different uh, contests in Oklahoma, and, and we would win some awards and stuff. And that was like, I think, sixth, seventh, and, and eighth grade. And uh, then my dad, we had to move again to Dallas. And so goodbye to friends. And uh, my sister, one of my sisters, was living in Oklahoma City. I have two sisters. And uh, um, so it was kind of hard leaving them. and Right. Uh, Being in close proximity to them. Right. But we had more family in Dallas and, or Fort Worth, really. Um but I don't remember. I guess the my dad worked for General Motors, and there was a training center um, in Garland, Texas. There, it's a small suburb. It was a small suburb, suburb right. of Dallas. Now it's huge. I was gonna say, yeah, it's it's um, overgrown now. <laughs> but then my parents did research and found a good high school that had a good music department, and so they got me in that, and. Uh, um, I loved it. I mean, I, I was a freshman coming in, had no experience with marching band or any of that. And uh, you do, um, uh, every year you go through, um, I can't remember what, what it's called, like a, a test, um, different horn, like, you know, trombones is, was one section and the tuba players were another section. And and they you would do a, uh, a prepared uh, piece of music to play on your instrument and then something to sight read, which means you've never seen it before. And so you just kind of had to figure it out for yourself. Mm -hmm. They gave you like 10 minutes to look through it. And so I did that and, you know, there was nine other tuba players. I mean, our, it was huge. Yeah, that's a lot uh, for of tubas. A, for a high school. Yeah. And these guys were juniors and seniors and 
um, I came in, I did my audition, and um, he posted the results like a day or two later. And everybody was like coming up to me and was like, good job. And I looked at the audition thing and the, the, the results, and I was in first place, first chair. Oh, wow. And I was That's just incredible. A, just a, a freshman, you know. And so it's kind of intimidating because I'm supposed to be in charge of well, all and, these guys. And, and you're the new kid. And I'm the new right. kid. <laughs> and, so, and a freshman. <laughs> you know, I was smart enough to get, you know, some of the older guys to help me. And because um, we were all on the same team. There wasn't like, you know, there was never any animosity between anything or just it was all for the marching band and that's cool and so that was really cool i mean you know i had something i got up at six in the morning and would do that um and then another early in the morning at the school and do that and then i got home and my sophomore year i would i had a job so i'd come home at like you know 3 30 or so and i had to be at work at four and so I take my backpack with me with books so on a break I could do my homework. And uh I did that for most of most of my high school. Um a, a question that came to mind when you were talking about the tuba section. You know, obviously this is a podcast talking about how we all ended up at Desert Rain Community. Right. Um, but through that because you said you guys were like a team, right? Like right. the tuba section for the marching band. Right. Um, had you really experienced community prior to that? Or was that maybe your first taste of like camaraderie and community outside of the your immediate family? I think um, uh, there was, I mean, I, I, at the time I wouldn't have known. Right, right, right. But. In any of the bands that I performed in, um, I think there was a sense of community that were the we we although you know, we'd have a first chair player and you could challenge the first chair player and try to get first chair right. and you know and, and that sort of thing. It was like a healthy competition, but um, it was community and and uh, there wasn't a lot of. The only expectations were that we were to do our best, mm. do the best we could do. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, and that really stuck with me, you know, and, and uh, it carried over later on when I was a father with the kids that there's a, um, some of the parents in the classes would give their kids money for having all A's or B's or whatever. And, we didn't have the money to do that with our kids. And so, but our, our mantra was, you know, you guys just do the best you can in school. And if the best you can is a C, it's a C, so what? Um, you know, and, and as long as you're, you know you're doing your best job, mm -hmm. that's all we expect. Putting your best foot forward at all times. Right. Yeah. And there is no good or bad. Um, it's just uh, um, learning to grow up and... Uh, well, and I think self-responsibility too, right? Like right. at the end of the day, or maybe not. I mean, it, it's hard to tell a child that, but as an adult for me, like at the end of the day, I have to sleep with my own thoughts and my, you know, so if I'm lying, cheating and stealing, right, that keeps me up at night. 
Right. You know, and so I, I don't lie, cheat, and steal. Yeah. You know, yeah. but I, I had to learn that the hard way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so, so uh, yeah, so you go through high school in Dallas. Yeah. And, and sort of where, where did that shoot you off to? Um, looking back, I can't remember if it was between my junior and senior year or if it was between my senior year and first year of college. Um, there's a, like a McDonald's All-American mm. um, high school band, and they take two or two to four people from from every state. Um, you send an audition tape, and um, a friend of mine who was a trumpet player, uh, he got the same um, invitation, and so he did his tape. I did my tape, and um, sure enough, a few weeks later, we got both got a letter saying we were accepted. Um, my parents had money saved and, and so, and I had money saved from, uh, the job I was mm-hmm. working in in high school. And right, so, right. you know, um, we were able to come up with the money for it. And so I've catapulted into, uh, New York city and, and never, never been there. And, you know, I've been away from Dallas now and um i don't have the the you know how everybody's doing and you know and but it tends the, the to old draw it tends to uh uh affect you and you end up doing the same the same thing you know yep, yep. and so you know here we are in new york city and all of us kind of have a little draw going from from especially east texas that's amazing and uh, we went to McDonald's, and we were all like, well, what are we going to get? And, you know, and the workers behind the counter were like, you guys going to order something? Or, you know, you know what? I mean, just, you know, it was like you felt like, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll go to a different place. I didn't mean to bother you. Or, you know. Yeah, the speed of New York City is much different, yeah. especially compared here to the Southwest. Yeah. So anyway, we uh, did a couple of, couple of weeks of... Uh, of rehearsals and we met, there was a, a guy, um, uh, Jim Kernow was his name and he was a, a composer for wind ensembles and he toured with us and premiered a work that he was working on and we played that in different areas that we went to and and that was kind of an honor to be able to do that and they gave us a lot of free free time and uh, we were able to go off on our own and doing stuff, and uh, as long as we stayed together as a group, mm. um, they didn't pretty much care what we did as long as we were where we were supposed to be, as far as the agenda was concerned. And, right. And so uh, we were able to go off and look at things and uh, museums and the birth, birthplace of Mozart and. Birthplace, birthplace of uh, Beethoven. Um, saw a lot of stuff like that that uh, was really interesting. And you know, there's a cheesy musical, The Sound of Music, and um, I had seen it before. And um, it was filmed in Aust- Austria, and uh, um, there was a place in 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 Austria where 
they had all the they had the mansion that was in the movie or the musical and uh, some other places and and it was kind of cool seeing all that after watching you know I'm not like some people with musicals I don't watch them <laughs> all the time but right. but um, um, for whatever reason I don't know why uh, I had watched the 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 uh, sound of music and uh, so kind of got on a rabbit tail there trail there and um well there was another country that made an impression on you so oh, yeah. to speak that yeah and it has a little bit of foreshadowing yeah for yeah. down the line yeah we spent some time in germany and uh when my parents um El Paso has always had a German military presence. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> in the last few years, they're trying to shut down the the U.S. bases and stuff and reorganize things. And so all the German soldiers that were here in town are now back in Germany or some were left to do citizenship in, in El Paso. And um, But the majority of them left. And Birgit had been working on Fort Bliss with the German... Uh, uh, Birgit, my wife, um, and she was working with the school, the, the German school. She was like the secretary, and and, uh, um, and that was kind of a anchor for her in the midst of this desert, dry heat. You know, right. that, there were fellow Germans. That, you know, she brothers could, and sisters from the homeland, right? So to right. speak, and so. Um, uh, uh, lost my train of thought. Again. Well, you you were talking about um, the tour you did in Europe and, and yeah. connecting with with Germany. Yeah, um, yeah, we had driven south towards Munich and uh, went to a place called Berchtesgarden. I'm not pronouncing it right, but and it was a place where uh, it was like Hitler's uh, retreat center um in world war ii and it was just absolutely beautiful um the trees there was a a lake um that was just incredible from the water from the snow-capped mountains streams flowing into it and we took a boat out in the middle of it with a glass bottom boat we could see straight through down to the to the uh Bottom o- of the ocean ble- uh, bottom, and uh, see all kinds of stuff, and uh, that really had an impact on Birgit and I for whatever reason. Because I had been there, and later on, when I had gone to uh, Germany, um, that's where Birgit wanted to go was down to Birch's Garden, the same place, and uh, we went there because everywhere we'd go. Um, like there's a there was a German restaurant here in El Paso, and they had a big painting of that lake and the, mm. the whole area, and uh, um, they're like, wow, that's uh, Lake Kunitzsee, I think is how it's called, and uh, um, I'm just kind of jumping ahead, but going back, um, yeah, uh, uh, just. After it was over and kind of wrapped up, um, 
the whole Germany thing was cool. I, I meant to say with my mom and dad, um, there was a, such a large presence of German military people. Um, when I was growing up at Fort Bliss, uh, they wanted they needed people to take them into their homes, mm. you know, feed them, and you know, and just kind of hang out with connection, them and, you know. And so we had, you know, people coming over and uh, German people, and you know, they liked to drink and party and uh, have a good time. And so my sister and I kind of grew up watching all of this, and you know the. Uh, my watching the parents do my parents do the jitterbug. <laughs> you know? That's incredible. And you know, it was like it was an amazing thing to watch. And um And so after your experience in Europe, how did you end up back? Because you were in spent, you know, high school in East Texas. How did you end up back in El Paso? Well, um I went through East Texas State after that uh trip. To Europe, and uh, and where, where was that university? Obviously in East Texas, but East Texas, um, Commerce Texas, which okay. is um, maybe an hour or two south of Paris, Texas, Texas, and north of another place called Sulphur Springs, mm. and it's real beautiful trees, um, grass, green grass, uh, um, uh, just really beautiful and and there's a little lake on campus and uh things were kind of coming unraveled with me at school um i did real well the first couple of years but um the third year i was in in there uh the third year at university yeah, yeah. uh in east texas um it just wasn't going so hot and i it fell behind on uh um, some of my assignments and the university was actually, uh, making an account, uh, accommodations for me based on my disability. Um, and I would get books on tape. Um, so I could listen to the, to the tape and follow along with the books because I'm an audio and visual learner. Mm. And so they accommodated me with that because I brought my records from, from high school, um, and even with that, um, I just, you know, I don't know, I don't know really what it was. Um, there was kind of a shakeup in the music department. Some of the people I, I really loved as professors were, were leaving, and um, it just kind of was a weird time. And, and, and I knew um, that it was getting weird, and... Um, I was having uh, suicidal thoughts mm. and uh, had done some pretty crazy things and um, jumped off an 18-foot balcony, um, landed on my head, and had my jaw wired together for six months. Wow. So I couldn't play the tuba. So I had to go and just sit in the rehearsals and... and, and uh, listen to what they were playing and uh, I had a pair of pliers that I had to carry around or wire cutters I had to carry around in my pocket in case I started getting sick and I needed to to uh, cut those those wires and um, so that set me back and yeah, I can only uh, imagine um, 
probably got carried away with the with the pain medicine for the for the jaw and uh, um started drinking uh drank probably way too much than I needed to and smoking pot and um uh, just sort of looking for an escape right yeah. right and uh, at some point I just I went through my medicine cabinet and um, everything I had in there I had the Percocet for the pain and um, I had uh, all kinds of stuff I took all those bottles out and put them in a bowl and I had a bottle of uh, Jack Daniels I just took all those pills and uh, um Plus swallowed him down, and then I just started waiting uh, for something to happen, and uh, it's like nothing was happening, and so I was like, "What? What? What did I do? I was, I was so stupid." Um, a friend of mine was driving down the road by my house, and uh, he pulled into the drive. I could see through the curtains. He was pulling into a park where I live, and he came in, and he was like, man, I felt this need that I needed to to come over. And uh, um, he had a actually a Christian metal band, and I've kind of followed him and his band mm. around there in East Texas, and um, they were good people. And um, friends with still to this day, and... Uh, he just sat with me. I told him what I'd done, and um, I don't know if he called my parents or or what. But my mom came, picked me up, took me back to Dallas, which was maybe like a maybe an hour and a half, two hour drive mm-hmm. back to where we where I lived. And then my brothers had gone into my old apartment and uh, taken everything out. And uh, I don't know, they just must have thrown away a bunch of stuff because I've never been able to find any of it. And and so I was back kind of where I started from. And uh, 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 there was a church my mom wanted me to go to, and I went to it in Dallas and... um, there was a small other group, and they were working through uh, the 12 steps um, from a Christian point of view. Was it the Celebrate Recovery uh, or something? Some probably a predecessor? Celebrate <laughs> Recovery. Um, it wasn't as necessarily as hardcore as the Celebrate okay. Recovery. Okay. I'm not really for I know the name of Celebrate yeah, Recovery, uh, but I've, you know, I've, yeah. my, my context for. The 12 steps is through AA. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I had gone to some AA meetings and and listened and, you know, and I could relate uh, to what a lot of the people were saying. And um, uh, so this one night I was still in, well, yeah. So I I went back to my parents and uh, got a job. 
downtown Dallas, working in an office building, uh, real painstaking uh, work where we, there used to be stuff called microfilm, micro, mm. microfish. Right, yep. And they were t- trying to, to transfer all of the, of that onto, into computers. Mm. And so I'd get like a stack of several years of, of uh, the magazines or the newspapers we were doing. And I had to, to go and take each one, put it on a machine and print out the thing, put it in a file. And, you know, it's just very, just kind of uh, meaningless work where you didn't really have to concentrate a whole lot on what you're doing. You just follow the steps and do it and, you know, get everything transferred over. And and honestly, I can't remember uh, what happened after that. Um, I got a job at UPS. I tried to get a job back at the place I worked during high school and uh, I couldn't get back in there. And so a friend of mine from Dallas, um, he said, let's go apply at UPS. I said, sure, okay. And and uh, we applied and man, it was like, I stuck with it for maybe a couple of weeks, <laughs> and, you know, and I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't hack it, the physical stuff. I come home and I could wring out the sweat in my jeans, you know, it was so hot and so I tried that for a while, and and, uh, and so what eventually springboarded you to to end up back in in El Paso? Okay, so prior to all of that happening, um, spring break of that year, I was still in Dallas. Nothing had happened yet with the the overdose, um, and then going back to that real quick. Nothing ever happened to me after taking all that stuff. I got up the next morning and went to school, and I was fine. That's incredible. And, um, yeah. And um, my mom couldn't believe it. My friend that was there, he couldn't believe it. And uh, So, but prior to that, on my spring break, um, I was invited back to El Paso by my brother. And... Uh, I stayed with them, and I wanted to go back to uh, Jesus Chapel. Mm. The pastor there, when I was a kid, was Fred Walker, and he was now on the east side um, uh, at Jesus Chapel there, and they had started school and were really doing a whole lot of stuff. And so I got into his office. He prayed with me, and, and I said, thank you, and... Um, really felt good about stuff, and I was leaving, and I ran into his son, um, Dale Walker, and uh, he actually remembered me uh, once I introduced myself, and he said, what are you doing this week? I said, I don't have really any, any plans, and he said, well, I'm doing a Holy Spirit conference here, and I want you to, to come, come to it, and and, you know, no pressure, just be there and, and worship and just see what happens. And I said, sure. And so I talked to my sister and brother-in-law and uh, borrowed one of their cars. And, um, or no, I still had my car, I think. 
and so I, I, I went to the to those meetings, and uh, it was incredible. It was like the the transition I went from, and when I was a kid, from the denominational church to the Jesus Chapel Church when I was a kid, it was like the difference between night and day. And I got that same feeling um, going to this church uh, on the east side with uh, the Holy Spirit Conference. Um, people there uh, that I would still know to this day, um, like Ernie and Linda and uh, a guy named David Kudar and uh, and so uh, I went to the Holy Spirit conference and I had you know I had people pray for me and stuff and uh, at one point it's kind of weird I felt a hand on my back and looked around nobody was there and uh, I heard this voice say turn around and talk to the person behind you his name's David I was like okay and I just <laughs> turned around and you know, this kind of wheelchair was there, and I was like, is your name David? And he said, yeah, how'd you know that? And, and I just kind of blew it off, and I said, well, I think we need to probably, you know, try to get together for lunch or something before I go back to Dallas. He said, sure, and so we went to lunch, and he said, man, he said, if you can get back here, uh, we can, you know, try to find a place and uh, maybe get you a part-time job and and uh, let's try to figure out where we can move into a place that's fairly cheap but has, you know, several rooms. And I was like, sure. And so um, I got uh, some jobs through the uh, through uh, the church in northeast El Paso and different kinds of jobs with the, the guy in a family that was there and he was in uh, Vietnam, got, had gotten exposed to Agent Orange, and so he kind of had a lot of cognitive issues about things. But he was incredibly, incredible hard worker, and uh, he just kind of pulled me along. And, you know, we re-roofed people's houses and uh, built patio covers, and never in my wildest dreams did I think I would be doing something like that. <laughs> right. And uh, one time we had like all the stuff on one side of the the uh, the extension to the patio, okay. and we had one of those ten gallon things of tar. Yep, yep. And yep. I was sitting up there, and a bunch of shingles, and kind of in a, just a real small place, right above the corner of the of the the, the patio cover, mm. and uh, we kept hearing this crack. And and the crack getting kept getting bigger, bigger and bigger. And we heard it. And we were like, "Okay, what's happening here?" And before we know it, we're flat on the ground, and the whole thing had collapsed. And my first instinct was like, "Let's get out of here. Let's leave and right run give through the hills. Guys, their money back. And <laughs> never see them again." And Jack was like, "No, no, no. We need to save stuff." So started through going through everything and finding the lumber we could keep and the lumber that we didn't need. And um, um, we got it done and separated and we we redid the whole thing and it didn't take very long and the people were real grateful and um, we thought, well, that was it for that neighborhood. And um, I don't know if he got a call or the guy 
showed up before we left, but there was a neighbor that saw everything that happened, and um, he was so impressed that we got up right away and started trying to rebuild the thing um, that he said, you know, a lot of people wouldn't do that. And it said, speaks for, you know, you know, the character and both of you guys. And I want you to do the same thing at my house. And so we did that. And you know, little things would pop up here and there, even a, a, like a, in a strip mall, there was a place and I had to completely, complete, completely gut it, take all the tile out. And I mean, it was like a three to five day um, thing where it was just a lot of work and... And it was good, and um, and uh, uh, I'm trying to see, think of dates. Um, that was kind of in the late '80s. I'm not sure when. Um, so, with the money from that, the money that my other roommate had. We were able to make rent and get a few groceries, and we were blessed at the church because people would drop by unannounced, and uh, uh, my roommate's girlfriend was working in the office at the church, and somehow she had a key to our house, and so we figured, because we come home and the, 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 the cupboards were all full of food, and the refrigerator was stocked and um, stuff on the walls and uh, really wild and you know and and uh, uh, we were just really I don't know what the word is it's like when everything starts kind of falling together or uh. you know whatever the word is I, I can't I can't think but everything just kind of fell into place and it's just as as I walked through the whole thing, um, it was kind of like building trust um, in my heart towards God and, and uh, some of the anger that I felt with towards God for the sexual abuse was kind of starting to break. And um, uh, eventually the, the handyman business didn't work anymore. And so... I had enough credit hours from college, and I started a substitute teaching, and uh, that was a pretty credible experience. It was down in the the lower valley again, and you know a lot of the kids were migrant workers from there was like cotton fields down there, and, and uh, the kids were kind of working in those fields and. Man, you could bring in anything to a classroom, bought a you know, bag of candy or um, small toys or whatever, and they would just light up like a Christmas tree and have so much gratitude for mm-hmm. getting something. I mean, it was like an honor to be able to, to serve these kids. And because and, uh, I had to drive on Border Highway, and, you know, on one side you'd see what is on the other side you'd see um uh el paso and and i I made that trip every morning and um it just it really 
really impacted me. And, uh, you know, you drive in El Paso long enough, you're going to get behind a truck that has all this broken down pieces of cardboard Mm -hmm. um, from boxes. And it was like filled to the five feet above where it really needed to be. And they were going like 45 miles on the freeway and you were getting all, (laughs) why is this damn truck, you know, you know, and I got a horn and, you know, and and it was like, whatever. And, um, later on, uh, when, uh, I ended up being in a mission school, we were driving and, uh, one of those trucks was in front of us and, uh, we were we were driving back to 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 Wadis, and I saw this truck pulled up, and everybody ran to the truck, and grabbed the broken down cardboard, and they were using that for walls mm-hmm. in their homes. All right. And uh, um, part of what we did was um, take tar paper and tar and some other stuff and we'd uh cover the 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 houses and stuff with the with the uh tar paper uh and make it real secure uh where wind couldn't get in and provide a little bit of installation for them so at least they wouldn't be you know so terribly cold um and that like had a super impact on me, and and, and I guess going back, um, um, I got back to to El Paso, and I'm kind of jumping around a lot. So yeah, and we're um, uh, we're kind of coming up on time, so I don't know if you could uh, sort of spend the last few minutes um, describing how you ended up here. At Desert Rain, sort of your okay. the. I know you were involved with another church and eventually sort of migrated to to Desert Rain. So if you could elaborate on that, sure. Um, there was a church, and first it was a coffee house, and uh, we had a grant for a sizable amount of money, and got it all got it all fixed up, and uh, it was for kids, and you know seven nine two four zip code was one of the highest. Uh, zip codes in Texas with mm. a juvenile crime rate. And so... Uh, and what was the grant through? The grant was through... Uh, it's actually a program that Bush... Okay. Um, w. Bush. Right, Bush um, Jr., uh, old yeah. junior. <laughs> <laughs> um, ins- ins- whatever word was... Uh, made this available to to states. And I don't know if the state ended up signing or if it was... Federal, I don't. Oh, okay. I don't know all of that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, it was incredible um, experience. Uh, there were so many kids, and you know, it wasn't like a an in and out kind of thing. None of us were pressuring them to, you know, give their hearts to Jesus. Mm, it was like more of a hangout. Be born again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or whatever. And, Here's your Bible. And right, sign right. sign on the dotted line. Right. <laughs> and so uh, we opened it up for them to bring their bands in. And and so we'd show up. Usually the 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 deal was we'd like go on Friday nights, Saturday nights, 
on Sunday nights. And there was just a whole lot to do to get the place closed down by midnight usually or sometime around there. And uh, it was just, you know, we had kids coming over and uh, with all kinds of issues and we had to serve them hot burger, or hamburgers and hot dogs and other barbecue and uh, just love on them because they, so, they were so special. Um, I still follow them quite a bit on Facebook and watching them grow and, and seeing what's happening in their lives. Um, it's incredible. Yeah, it's, that's beautiful. And, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, there's nothing like feeling like you're in a place where you belong and that's where you're mm. supposed to be doing what you're supposed to do. And, yeah, that sigh of, or that was, uh, connection with feeling right. at home. Right. Yeah. Kind of slowly over a period of a few years, um, that started changing. We lost the grant. Um, so it moved more into a, uh, kind of like a regular church. Uh, in the beginning, it was at Sunday nights, and then um, we had to move it to Sunday mornings. So a lot of the kids that were coming on Sunday nights weren't really able to come in the morning because, you know, the kids are going to sleep in. And, and so, you know, there were, it was just, it was like a completely different um, design than what we originally you know, I thought it to be, and yeah, it had morphed, morphed drastically. Yeah, sounds like yeah. And for us, um, we had been interested in trying to to start our own church, and uh, hadn't realized that you know the vineyard had come up with like a uh, I don't know how many of our pages interview that you're supposed to follow uh, fill out. You know, with questions like, you know, how how many people have you led to the Lord in the past month, or you know, or whatever, and um, just kind of borderline dogmatic kind of stuff. Mm. And uh, Birgit and I knew that, you know, the our values were kind of not quite there. And at the time, we started coming out to Desert Rain. Uh, I'd known. David Morrison from another job I had at America's High School. And I kind of got to hear some of the, the visions that he had about the desert and kind of what was going on with um, the whole thing about leaving. And it sounded real intriguing to me. And, uh, um, and so we started going since we had church on Sunday mornings. We started coming to Desert Rain at night. And um, we're like, we're like, this is it, you know, this, this is where we belong. And um, so it was just a matter of time. Some things kind of fell into place. Um, we had been going again to Desert Rain on the on Sunday nights, and uh, the pastor at the church we were at, he wasn't quite too pleased about that. And, um, so we had a little talking to do with him, and. Um, don't think he fully understood what uh, what we were trying to do, and um, uh, well, and it's probably one of those things too that it's hard to articulate that recognition at the time, right? Because the that church had shifted so much 
from the coffee house to sort of a stereotypical Sunday morning gathering, if you will, to articulate that to leadership of like, hey, the church has grown in a different way than than we have grown right. as a family. Right. Yeah, and the focus kind of became on on church growth and you know, even setting numbers like we need three hundred people by, you know, January or whatever. And the numbers thing just didn't sit right with with Birgit and I and uh so eventually kinda came to a head and um uh we left and uh it was emotional and it was maybe a little more drama than it needed to be, but it was heavy and we knew that's what we needed to do and um Um, I don't remember, we went out, we went out there and we explained to David and Marcia what, what was happening and, um, Dave's like, yeah, you know, you guys are welcome out here. And, um, so I actually stayed in the dorm, mm-hmm. uh, I think for a couple of weeks and man, I just, I would go out on the deck of the dorm, and I would just cry and cry and cry. Um, just releasing all that stuff? Yeah. And it was, uh, it was intense, you know, giving up those relationships. And, you know, and we still see the kids today and, you know, what they become. And, and it's, it's rewarding um, to see how much we were able to help them. Um, but it was hard. Moving out of there, and the kids, and they had developed friends, and uh, you know, I just I found a big stick, and I had a Swiss Army, Swiss Army knife, and I just whittle, mm. and I just sit out on the back porch on the, on the dorms and just whittle. Just get that um, that meditative state in. Yeah. With yeah. the with the knife in your. And everybody stick. was really cool here. They let me have the space. And, yeah. to do that and you know at the same time you know people different people come out and say how are you doing you want to eat with us or this or that and um, just you know uh, took us in and um, and yeah and so that you know I started listening to the Beatles again I started listening to you know like different other different bands that you know, I hadn't really listened to very much in the between the music and the the pop music and the um, uh, some of the books we were reading just kind of helped solidify, at least in my mind, um, what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, at one point, I can't, I don't, I don't the dates. I just, I don't, I don't remember. But uh, Jacob and David. Uh, wanted to go to uh, Albuquerque uh, with uh, Richard Rohr mm, at a right, conference. Right. And uh, we stayed with some people that David and Jacob both knew from Albuquerque. And so we stayed with them. And then we'd go to the to the hotel where the, the meetings were at. And I was kind of sitting there not knowing what to expect. And I think some nuns were like sitting at our table. And... Uh, 
um, just different people. And mm -hmm. uh, they were so cool. And uh, I just started pre uh, not preaching, but just talking about things. And, you know, and one person was mentioning that, you know, you know, how do you know really that the resurrection really took place? You know, what, you know, and I was thinking, well, how dare you? You <laughs> can't question <laughs> that. You can't, yeah, yeah. We got a know. video recording of it, man. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, just different stuff like that that was like being challenged, and I had never been challenged that way. Yeah. And uh, um, it was hard. I mean, you know, it was really, it was like, wow, you know, I've got like this major shift going on. And um, uh, as the the uh, conference went on, there was like a pivotal moment for me. We were outside of the 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 uh, hotel, and there was a, a food a restaurant across the street. David and Jacob and I were kind of in the parking lot, and we were talking. And I just kind of had this revelation that you know that you know well maybe you know people that constantly have to use the Bible to justify everything, just are using that as a scapegoat and not really taking responsibility for the things that they're doing. Mm. And and they could blame it on the Bible. So if that got taken away, then they'd have to look at themselves and, um, um, and realize that's where it starts. And um, I had a guy in AA, you know, when I, one of my first meetings that I'd gone to, he sat down in front of me and he opened up the big book to a page and there was nothing on it. And he said, Paul, um, pretend like there's a mirror on that page and I want you to look on it, look at it. And um, um, that's going to tell you what your problem is. And uh, um, I was like, okay. And he goes, you need to take the cotton out of your ears and stick them in your mouth and if you uh, have to fart, shove it up your ass so you don't bother anybody. <laughs> and uh, um, excuse my language. Um, it's quite all right. Uh, we've, we've said much worse on here. So. And, so, and so, you know, I was like, okay. And uh, um, but some of the wisdom they had, he'd studied all different kinds of religion and stuff. And, you know, I was able to kind of get out of the dogma of where I was at and just accept what was happening and and just kind of go with it. Um, Brian McLaren was at the conference and he wrote a book called There's a New Kind of Christianity. I had that book and then I had another book that David had given to me called The, the Heartbeat of God, I think is the name of it. It was like John Philip Newell. Mm. And um, the whole thing there was just briefly, was just you know basically saying that that uh, you know, if you look in the face of a of a newborn baby, and all you see is sin, man, there's something wrong with you. If you look at the face of a newborn baby, you're gonna see incredible love and good, and, and happiness, right? You know, joy. Not a sinner that mm -hmm. that needs being saved, um, and that that book, you know, was like real uh, instrumental in me doing a lot more re research with uh, the emergent church thing 
there's the gal Phyllis Tickle. She was like a massive historian, and um, uh, she kind of went through the whole history of it in one of her books. I wish I could remember the name of it. I think everybody should read it. Um, and just went back over like the last 500 year, years of how the church has changed. And her her hypothesis was that the the church was going through like these cycles of every 500 years, something different was happening and shaking up the church and different things were going on. And she mentioned that, you know, we were in thro the throes of another 500 years and that had a lot to do with uh, LG the LGBT community and accepting gay marriage and, you know, different things like that, um, that kind of the 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 uh, uh, mainstream churches were you know, not ready to make that uh, 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 what's the word uh, to make that transition from you know no this lifestyle is wrong and, and this is not right and you know this is the way it is and, and there's no difference between what they were doing and what the church did during slavery, using the Bible to justify what they were doing, mm -hmm. and they were using the buff the buffalo the the um, the Bible to justify their hatred towards you know the LGBT community, and um, um, and that you know was was like yeah you know I can see that, and so I read that book by uh, Brian McLaren and. And it was a really good book, and it and it was solidifying a lot of things in my own mind. And uh, and Birgit, she was she was like upset about leaving um, the other church we were in, and um, she was still going through some some healing with that. But then I came home from the conference, and I was like, "Well, you know, I don't think the Bible's true anymore." <laughs> you know, right. saying you, all this you, stuff. You had pulled a, a full one eighty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No and she's like, "One conference, <laughs> I can't go there." <laughs> and yeah. I realized it, and I was like, "Well, crap!" You know, I just need to back off, and you know, and and uh, let her have her journey, and trust that you know we'll end up, you know, on the same page and. Well, I think that's one of the beautiful things for knowing knowing you and Birgit is watching you guys be able to walk together through thick and thin. Yeah. You know, and, and sort of having that that trust in each other in the sense of uh, you got each other's back. Yeah. yeah. You know, not, not necessarily that it's all good all the time or you agree right. on 100% of the things, but um, right. there's still that that respect and that, that uh, unconditional love between right. the two of you. Right. Yeah, and, you know, 2012 comes around and um, another series of events happened that I won't get into, but I found myself uh, um, in a psychiatric ward in uh, a UBH. I don't remember what it's called now. And um, it was a psychiatric mental hospital, mental health hospital. And I had a, uh, what they called a, a, a antidepressant-induced mania episode. Mm. So the antidepressant that I was on was actually causing uh, this manic episode. Um, 
And then I was taking a steroid, and that was helping too. And so, you know, like before, I was like, oh, fuck it. I just took a bunch of pills, and of course nothing happened. And um, uh, ambulance was called, and and two times, actually. One time they took me in, and um, they kicked me out the next morning. I had no car or anything. I had to try to find to get a ride home. And... Uh, um, and it was after that that I had gotten in this other treatment center and uh, was diagnosed with uh, bipolar 1, uh, PTSD um, from the child abuse stuff, and uh, uh, generalized anxiety disorder. And uh, so... I uh, got on completely different uh, medications and uh, I had a phone call there from my boss at the, at the school and she said, you know, um, we're fixing to start up the new fall semester so I need to know what your plans are. And uh, the nurse was like, tell her you're going to um, uh, just back away for a while. And so I told her, you know, the mess that I'm on and stuff, I just, I don't think I could, I could teach a day. Yeah. Um, and so that was really hard. And the therapist I was going to felt like um, Birgit and I should separate for a while. And Birgit had the kids, they were staying out here. I was alone at my house. And uh, um, that was like, yeah. And uh, it was really hard. My dad died um, in the middle of all of this, and all the family was here. And uh, I could still see uh, kind of a mistrust in Birgit's eyes towards me, and that was really bothering me. And um, uh, everything happened with my dad's funeral, and got through all that uh, without. Well, there's a few hiccups, but. Um, uh, my family decided that um, if I stay. Then my therapist had said, "You know, why don't you stay with your mom?" Because she had, you know, three rooms, empty rooms. They were all upstairs, and I could do her yard, take care of the house, and just kind of get my used to my medicine and and be doing something. Uh, uh, profitable or whatever and I was doing all that and you know all of my family uh, in the backyard we were talking and uh, they said Paul we don't want you to stay uh, with uh, your mom because you know with the bipolar stuff you know people steal and uh, um and we're afraid you're going to take advantage of your mom, and it's just going to be real hard on her psychologically. And, and uh, it really disturbed me because one of my brothers was a medical doctor, the other one was a, a counselor trained mm -hmm. um, with a masters, and um, and my other brother he was a pastor, and there was no recognition of you know what really is a mental health crisis and. 
and what does it mean? And they were all trained in it, right? But they couldn't apply it to the situation. Yeah, they were too close was, to it. What was going on? Yeah. And so I moved all my stuff stuff out, and uh, went back to my house, stayed there. Um, uh, at that time, my sister, my other sister, took my kids to McDonald's. She brought them back. Kids came in the house and said, Aunt Betty said that you're kind of cuckoo, and that's why we couldn't come for so long. It's because, you know, you know, you just weren't right in your mind. And I was like, okay, and let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Went through all of that with the kids, and they understood. And I had a, a session actually scheduled that Saturday with my therapist. And so I loaded up everybody in the car and we went to that appointment and he kind of sorted everything out for us and said, you know what, it would be a good idea if you moved back in um, to the to the house. So um, that's good that you got that all done, taken care of. And, you know, and just, you know, mind your own P's and Q's and just stay away from the drama. And uh, that was fine. One of the meds I was taking, I'd wake up like super early. My mom, after my dad died, she would be up at like between 4.30 and 5. And so about 5 o'clock, I'd call her in the morning and uh, just talk to her and see how she was doing. And she was in kind of the beginning stages of dementia. And uh, um, so I kind of had to navigate through all of that. And so I did that over a period of time. Uh I called her one morning. She didn't answer. And I thought, oh, maybe she's sleeping in. So um, I tried a little later and then got sidetracked doing something in the house. And remembered, oh, I need to call my mom. By then it was like 1030. And so I called her and nobody was there. So I got in the car and went to the house. And my mom was laying on the floor. And uh, she had tried to get over to a lamp, I think, to turn it on. And that was over on its side. And uh, some tables were over on the side. Um, and I had no idea what was going on. I called my brother-in-law to help me out. And he called the ambulance. And they took her in. She was really never the same mm. since then. And um, one of my brothers apologized to me. Because he said, well, maybe if we let you stay there, you know, that may have not happened. And uh, um, I said, yeah, you know, let's just figure out what to do now. So my sister and brother-in-law, they ended up moving back to Dallas, took my mom with them and put her in a nursing home. And it wasn't maybe two months or so, and and she had died. And uh, um, we did have a service for her here because there were other friends here. And uh, Steve did it. David read a real heavy poem. And so I could put my mom and my dad to rest and uh, um, go th- have to go through all that, work on gaining trust back with Birgit. She was studying and reading different things. And eventually we came to a, to a, a conclusion that we both thought was good 
kind of we were able to deconstruct what we'd been through and then figure out, well, how do we, how do we build this back up again? And uh, um, we were like the family and, you know, I mean, there was a list of things that, that we had decided that that's what we want to do. And uh, I had some old business to take up with some in the community because when I was in the Manic episode, I was on a blackout and I'd written some uh, just not very cool emails to some yeah. of the people on, in the community. And so um, I didn't re exactly remember at the time. David told me and uh, um, that was a real heavy time not knowing if they were going to forgive me or, you know, what was going to happen. And, um, and they did. And it's, it's um, beautiful that you're able to, to reconcile that. Yeah. yeah. So I was able to put all that back on the shelf and, uh, start looking at myself. And when I think that's where the, the true growth sort of begins and ends is that self-reflection yeah. Within the context of a safe community. Yeah. Yeah. Well, appreciate you, man. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Appreciate your, you too. Share, share, thank you for sharing your story today. Yeah. You feel yeah. good? Yeah, I feel real good. It was heavy, but it was good. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and thank you all for listening. Once again, this is uh, sitting with Paul West, uh, sharing his road to Desert Rain. And um, as we close those guitars you hear in the background right now that's actually uh david and danny west uh paul's sons that he he mentioned during his story so thank you to them for for that beautiful music um if you want to learn more about desert rain community check out the ruin.com um and drcr pod for other episodes uh beer gets if you haven't listened to hers was released uh, probably I think being two weeks prior to yours so um, check hers out and um, drcrpod.com is where you can find all, all our past episodes so uh, thank you once again Paul thank you and uh, thank you for everyone listening thank you